This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hi. Victories for right-wing governments in Europe happened in Austria, then in Italy this week, also in Sweden. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. That's right. We have another European government with kind of sort of ties to Nazis, this time now in Sweden. Uh, Just like in Austria, we kind of covered this as the election progressed. We talked about on this show the way that the Sweden Democrats came along and became the largest right wing party in in Sweden's parliament, that they would have a decisive role in the in the government. Uh, that happened in the, their elections back on September 11th. Now we're getting the government. Now they finished doing the coalition negotiations, uh, and we started. We got a look on October 18th as uh, what what it means in practice to have you know, a far right extremist party become the largest right wing party. Now this party, they are you know, because they're kind of extreme because. Nobody really wants to do business with them because of these kind of their, their kind of neo-Nazi background. They are not officially part of the government. However, what you have is a minority coalition led by the moderate party, but enabled by the Sweden Democrats. They're relying on the Sweden Democrats' votes in parliament to get their positions through. This is called a confidence and supply arrangement. And you can start to see already in the even just the policies that they've agreed, they have had to steer a long way in the direction that the Sweden Democrats wanted. It's a fascinating example where you don't even have to end up naming the prime minister. You don't have to end up running the government. But if you have enough people shift to these parties, they inevitably shift all of politics. So tell us more about uh, this party and what they stand for. So what I think we see with this party, it's the same kind of paradox you see in Italy and a lot of other places where, you know, like I've, I've already said, they have these ties to neo-fascism uh, and these roots that go back to some genuinely disturbing parties. You look at where they're pushing the government, though, and uh, you, know, you have to agree with a lot of it. Right. That these parties, just because you know, they're responding to real problems and real threats. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of, we need to see both. And the media is full of people that see one factor, either that these guys are neo-fascists and links to very extreme people, uh, or they see that they're putting in a lot of policies dealing with a lot of genuine problems. It seems very rare that you you get somebody that can keep both of those true facts in mind at the same time. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing here is that they're pushing Sweden to finally address its problems with radical Muslims and immigrants. This is a country that has an insane level of migrant violence. People have been publishing articles just talking about how grenade attacks, explosions in the streets of big cities are just becoming a part of normal everyday life. And this is something that has happened very quickly because the country has opened its floodgates to migrants. 
So this this is the reason for the big switch in, in support for the Sweden Democrats. And this is where they've invested most of their political capital in making changes, where they're bringing in hardline policies to deal with migrants, to deal with this Islamist terrorism. So they're bringing, they want to bring in where you can deport criminal gangs who lack Swedish citizenship. Uh, they will doing more to have the government take on crime fighting responsibilities, centralizing power there, uh, looking at can we send our prisoners abroad to have to have their prison sentences in other countries. Uh, they're cutting the number of migrants. Sweden has had a quota of 5,000 mig- uh, refugees per year. They've cut that to 900. That's more of a symbolic change. You know, these people aren't coming in. Th- these masses that came into Sweden didn't come as some kind of quota system. Uh, and then they're dealing with some of the problems with extremism and Islamism within schools and trying to, uh, you know, work with these uh, these smaller parties. But uh, sorry, work with with the educational departments. So what you're seeing, though, is I thought the New York Times put it well, where their policies are really becoming the government policies. It says the three losing parties, the moderates, the Christian Democrats, and the liberals, will govern on behalf of the one winning party. So you know, they're not. They're not on paper anywhere in government, but they are in power. So you mentioned uh, how people are having a hard time keeping both the fact that this uh, this party has Nazi connections and that they're addressing these real world problems, both of these things in mind. And I guess for us, looking at this from the standpoint of Bible prophecy and knowing what prophecy says is going to happen in Europe, we're looking at this very differently. It's hard to ignore uh, Nazi roots or, you know, these connections that really bring this troubling history to mind because prophecy says this is Europe's future. It's not just its past. That's right. Mr. Armstrong used to talk a fair bit about how human nature, it tends to be, it tends to be a bit like a pendulum. You know, we go from one extreme to another. You see this throughout history where uh, in a whole raft of different areas will tend to be really loose on something and then then really extreme. And I think in this, you're watching a pendulum swing where Europe has been in this, this kind of absurd position of openness, tolerance, and it sounds so good. And, you know, maybe for the elites, it lets them virtue signal living in their, in their wealthy houses, their well-protected neighborhoods, and uh, you know, they're able to afford their own personal protection while those that don't have these advantages, those that live in poorer neighborhoods, suffer the brunt of these gangland problems and things like that. But instead of going to some kind of moderate position, yes, with the pendulum's now swinging back to something that's much more restrictive and that's something that instead of openness and tolerance really exalts Christianity and Europe's Christian heritage as being a core part of, of, of Europe. You're seeing that rise up across the continent in places like Sweden and Italy with Giorgio Maloney, these leaders that have a, a strong Christian heritage. And you know, human nature, I think, warns us to beware of going to the opposite extreme. And then the Bible warns us of that in black and white, just like you said, that Bible prophecy tells us that you're going to have a religious revival in Europe, a religious the rise of a religious empire in europe an empire that's that's led by a church it talks about in revelation chapter 17 daniel 7 and 8 use different language to describe the same phenomenon where you've got this uh uh this little horn this kind of smaller power that's uh dictates that controls what the what the larger 
power does. And you've got you know, a woman, a church in Revelation chapter 17, that's a, you know, a church, a woman, a type of a church in biblical prophecy that is controlling things. And it's a revival of what we've seen rise before. It's a revival of what we saw under Hitler and Mussolini. It's a revival of what you saw under Napoleon. And then you can go back into the Middle Ages and the Holy Roman Empire and Charlemagne. You can see these examples of where we've had this before. The Bible says you're going to keep seeing it resurrecting up in, in Europe. And the good news that the Bible gives is this is the last time. But we're seeing a revival of the same thing that co has caused so much destruction across Europe uh, and across the world. So it's not we're not going to kind of meet and rest in a happy medium somewhere in the middle where Europe has a, a sane but compassionate, genuinely compassionate immigration policy or, an, or and sane conservative values. Yeah. You're going to see something that very quickly goes over to the other extreme. And the Bible warns us that this is something that God is allowing to happen to to. Uh, correct the world, but it's also the last time that it's going to be allowed to happen. Yeah, outstanding point. Uh, and those who are looking for solutions to these problems really need the warning that Bible prophecy gives in order to see where these trends are going to end up. You really can't see that any other way. Um, even when you are looking at the history, it's it's easy to uh, to minimize the threat that is rising in Europe today. We thank you very much for that. I'd like to direct our listeners to an article that went up on the website this week from Mihailo Zekic, uh, Sweden's Riksdag fire, uh, talking about this election in Sweden that really does have uh, prophetic implications, particularly when viewed in light of the larger trend within Europe. Israel just signed a historic deal with Lebanon, a nation that has been a dangerous enemy for many years now. Is this a new Abraham Accords victory for Israel or something different? For answers, we'll turn to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, this is a pretty big agreement that's being um, touted right before Israel goes to its election here in a couple of days. Between Israel and Lebanon, which gives a, a new demarcation line of the, the area out into the Mediterranean Sea, what territory belongs to Lebanon, what territory belongs to Israel. And it was mediated by the Biden administration, at least this version of it. it these negotiations started with Obama, actually, uh, back 10 years ago. And it's finally been agreed upon by the Lapid-led government, signed off by his cabinet. It was not put to vote for the Israeli Knesset. However, this um, this deal itself, basically the nuts and bolts is that Israel loses quite a, or gives up quite a bit of the disputed territory that it that it wanted, um, which the the border that the UN had agreed to before go kind of runs directly halfway between a a, a gas field, a potential gas field, uh, the Kana gas field, and. And so, obviously, where this border is is drawn out is going to affect going forward the the economy of either Israel or, or Lebanon. Um, and as far as this deal goes, Lebanon gets full rights to uh, access this gas field. Um, the line line twenty three, it's called, goes through. It goes further south, far further south than Israel in in uh, initially wanted. Um, and then there might be some security guarantees by the United States that if Hezbollah ever fires at Israel's gas field, which is further south, the Karish gas field, that the United States will do something about it. Um, there might be some monetary benefit for Israel when the, the French company that's involved in drilling here starts to produce oil, uh, gas, sorry, that there will be some 
access for Israel uh, to get some money for it, but it was be under the full control of the Lebanese government. So there is a lot of conflicting information out there about whether this was good for Israel or not. Obviously, there are Israelis that are eager to tout this as as a real victory, and you know this is a, a warming of relations with this historic enemy that they've had. Others say this is an absolute disgrace. Uh, maybe you can just take us through uh, your thoughts on that. What you feel like the the contrary evidence. Uh, is all right. So this this deal was trying to be hammered out by um, the Trump administration in the last two years of 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 when he was in power, and they were negotiating that Israel would get around forty five percent of the gas field. The line would go right through the middle, and then Lebanon would get half of it. And this deal, it was walked away. Um, the Lebanese walked away uh, from it, and it really got stirred up again under the Biden administration with a phone call that was made by President Biden himself to Prime Minister Yair Lapid back on August 31st. And the readout of the call, Israel failed to mention anything about this in the readout of the call. And yet the the Biden administration did that. They had mentioned that they wanted the renewed this, this deal to go through. And since that time, it's been pushed very hard by the United States. And I can't help but see it in a deal that, in a way that Lebanon, which again still answers at this point to Hezbollah, who is an Iranian ally, they're the, still the most dominant factor in, in Lebanon. They had to Hezbollah had to sign off on this for it even to be signed, um, and and so they are the ones that wanted this this kind of result. Um, in the end, Lebanon gets a hundred percent control over the gas field. Is Israel loses territory? It's being touted by Israel as some type of you know not land for peace but water for peace. You know this this idea they get a bit of land we buy a bit of peace, um, and the Biden administration is historically antagonistic towards Israel and favorable towards Iran. And so when Iran's enemy, uh, when Iran's ally, sorry, is praising such a deal as Hezbollah leader Nasrallah came out and said, then. I think Israel is not looking at it and shouldn't look at it as a victory. What did they get out of this deal? Name one good thing they got out of this deal. The potential that Hezbollah won't fire at Israel's gas, uh, <laughs> its own gas installation, a drilling facility or um, in the Mediterranean. They got that. They got, I guess, on paper, Lebanon signed something that Israel signed something. There's no normalization between the two. That's an Abraham Accord thing. There's no recognition of Israel as a state. Um, So it doesn't seem that Israel got much out of it. Now, the benefit that could come out of it, I think, is, is, is more for Lebanon itself, whether those funds go to Hezbollah eventually. Israel's trying to beg the United States to give a guarantee that the funds won't go to Hezbollah from the gas field. But Lebanon may ben- may benefit as a state, and then perhaps the Europeans as well, who have this historic relationship with Lebanon, who do want access to gas, um, as as is obvious right now. So, uh, exactly how that plays out with respect to uh, Israeli Lebanon relations, I guess, remains to be seen, and and even uh, what this does to Hezbollah's grip on power within Lebanon. Uh, looked at from a European perspective. Um, how, how do they view this as a victory? Well, I think Europe, I mean, it's they're, they're, they're scaring the earth to, to have independent 
energy or at least energy from different sources that don't have them over a barrel, uh, be it Russia or even some of the, I would say, some of uh, some of the OPEC countries, uh, the Arab states. And they have this historic relationship, especially the French. And it's a French company that was awarded the drilling rights here. So they'll be the ones doing any everything. Um, they want another source of, of, of energy. And Lebanon seems to be a great option for them going forward. And, and this is where biblical prophecy, I think, could come into play. Maybe not in the immediate term, uh, but the, the boomerang effect here will actually benefit uh, Euro- the European relationship with Lebanon. Uh, we we've talked about this um, for the past couple of decades that Europe is going to grow closer to Lebanon. How Lebanon is going to fall out of the the control of of Iranian-backed Hezbollah. Iran will no longer dominate Lebanese politics. And when you have a necessary energy source for Europe, potential energy source even um, coming from Lebanon. And then you might even have Hezbollah maybe threatening to to make have greater control there. You can see how the Europeans would become strong fans of a an independent Lebanon from from Hezbollah. So down the line, you could see how this might might play into biblical prophecy. So just briefly explain that prophecy to conclude. Yeah, this is found in Psalm 83. It details an end-time prophecy, a prophecy of an alliance that's never taken place before, where it lists a bunch of Middle Eastern states. We call them basically the moderate moderate Sunni states, um, the Gulf states, Turkey, Jordan, uh, and then also Lebanon and Syria are included in this. And, And this is an alliance that is at odds with the Iranian alliance that includes Iraq, Iran, um, the uh, eventually the 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 yeah, east the western side of the Red Sea as well, um, so there has to be a change here. And Mr. Flurry has written at length about this, how the Syrian crisis will end, is what he wrote back in 2011. Uh, he's written the about the mysterious prophecy, uh, another article that he's written to talk about how Lebanon is eventually going to come out of the Iran Iran Iranians hold. Iran's hold in favor of a, an alliance with Europe and some of other, the other Arab states. All right. Thank you very much for that. We'll link to those articles by Gerald Fleury in the show notes for the program today. If you want to check those out, uh, we appreciate your contribution there, Mr. Noctegal. More threats coming from Russia as it seeks victory in the war in Ukraine, the latest specifically directed against the United States. For this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, it was on Wednesday that the spokesman for Russia's foreign ministry, Konstantin Vorontsov, uh, announced that Russia may start to target the satellites that the United States is using to help Ukraine as Ukraine defends itself against Russia's invasion. So the logic there is pretty clear. Russia understands that America is using its uh, constellations of satellites to give Ukraine all kinds of intelligence. And that intelligence is making a momentous difference on the battlefield. It's a big part of the reason why Ukraine's HIMAR strikes have been just so precise at taking out really vital Russian uh, logistics. And just in general, it's a big part of the reason why Russia has failed to conquer Ukraine so far. So the Russians are now saying, well, guess what, America? If you keep on helping Ukraine with your satellites, then we will destroy those satellites. And the evidence shows that these are not empty 
Russian threats either. We've spoken on on the show here several times about the various weapon systems that Russia has in place that could destroy American satellites. Some of those are the uh, direct ascent anti-satellite missiles. Some are ground-based laser systems. And then some are actually maneuverable satellites that Russia already has up in orbit. So with those, it could you know, kind of steer over to the satellites of another nation and then uh, nudge them off course or damage them or fasten, you know, some sort of spy equipment to them. There's there's a whole range of possibilities. But uh, Russia is just furious about the way U.S. satellites are helping Ukraine, and it does appear to have the weapons in place to make good on these new threats about attacking those satellites. We've talked about the possibility of satellite warfare before, and two points stand out to me. One is America is so dependent on satellites. Uh, this, in order to uh, to operate its very technically advanced military, it it has to have access to uh, these satellites. And of course, there uh, are a lot of other reasons why the United States uh, relies heavily on these satellites, but military. Uh, military purposes are certainly at the top of the list from a strategic standpoint. The other thing is, though, just how dangerous satellite warfare could be, not just to the the nation that is targeted. Uh, if I'm correct, you know, you blow up a satellite and this produces a whole lot of uh, problems for all of the satellites up there just because of the, the shrapnel from that. Yeah, both very good points. Th- those debris fields can last for decades and decades um, if a if a satellite is destroyed. So that you know presents a danger to everyone who has assets in orbit. But uh, yeah, I think your your other point just about the dependency of the United States is really central to what makes this so alarming. The U.S. has hundreds of satellites in orbit. We depend on them for you know things like weather monitoring and television broadcasting, also just a wide range of telephone and internet technologies. Of course, we have our massive GPS system that gives uh, users just all kinds of positioning and navigation and timing services. And then, as you said, the most important aspect of it is that the U.S. military relies on satellites for just a whole array of reconnaissance systems and communication and uh, navigation and targeting systems. And they do actually extend into the way that America is helping Ukraine defend against uh, Russia. The Russians are right about that because many American satellites have been just vital to Ukraine's military and even civilian communications throughout this war. Um, And then America also has far more satellites in orbit than any other nation. And we depend on them more than other nations, too. So it's really an outsized vulnerability that we have up there in in orbit. And analysts agree that these are some of America's most vulnerable assets. I've, I've got an interesting quote here from one of the Pentagon's missile experts. He recently said, U.S. space systems are among the most fragile and vulnerable assets operated by the U.S. military. This infrastructure is worth billions of dollars and is vital to nearly every activity of the United States armed forces and increasingly of U.S. allies. So, you know, if the right satellites were taken out, which it looks like the Russians could do with at least some of them, that could be just devastating for America. So there is a prophecy that talks about the possibility of American uh, dependence on uh, this technology actually coming back to bite us. Uh, 
explain that to us? Sure. Yeah. Well, there are uh, there are several prophecies about a time in the future when America and some of its partners will be besieged by Russia and some of its partner nations. Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 27, also Deuteronomy, um, they, they all paint a picture of this. And then Isaiah 59 adds some specific detail about this time. Uh, in verses 9 and 10, it says, well, it, it shows the people of America there to be just stripped of vision. It says, quote, we walk in darkness, we grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. So, you know, this we can we can really already see this happening in a spiritual way in America today. America is groping around in just a horrible state of spiritual blindness. But the vision that is missing in this prophecy could also possibly include some physical kinds of seeing, including that that is provided by our eyes in the skies, the the numerous satellites we have up there. So yeah, I think when you put these scriptures all together, it really makes those threats from Russia about targeting U.S. satellites just all the more concerning. Well, the uh, title of the article that uh, Mr. Jacques has just finished about this, Russia warns of possible attacks on U.S. satellites used to help Ukraine. You can go check that out at thetrumpet.com. We thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Jacques. Election Day in America is just over a week away. There are some concerning signs coming from the state of Pennsylvania. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, it's been almost two years since the last election in the United States, and the nation still has not addressed the voter fraud allegations from that election. And that could definitely come back to uh, come back to bite us in the state of Pennsylvania alone. They've already mailed out one million mail in and absentee ballots to people across the uh, across their various counties. And about a, almost a quarter of those ballots, 240,000, are what they called unverified ballots. That means they they weren't sent out to a specific person with the voter ID number already pre-printed on it. It's basically just blank. You have to uh, put in your own signature, your own voter ID number, and then when the state receives that, you have to go through, you know, uh, all the terms we're so uh, used to from the last election, the signature verifications, the signature matches. It takes time. It gets messy. And election officials in Pennsylvania are already warning that people shouldn't necessarily expect an official result on election night because since election night is the deadline for the ballots, they said it may take a few days to go in through these quarter of a million unverified mail-in ballots to look at these different signature matches. Uh, and so anyone who remembers how that went last election, it definitely looked like Trump had won Pennsylvania. And then as this drug out for days, they found that um, actually uh, Biden was declared the winner with like an 80,000 vote uh, margin. And because of the uh, irregularities with the signature match and other things, I mean, it's pretty, I think pretty more and more Americans are accepting that that election was stolen, and they're doing the exact same thing again. 
Yeah, Stephen Fleury has been talking about this quite a bit on the uh, the Trumpet Daily over this past week, and just how uh, we're already getting these warning signals from the Democrat Party saying, uh, "Oh, this one, we're going to have uh, election fraud in in this election because it's so clear that." the uh, Republicans are going to to win in so many places, uh, but they have not given up their efforts to uh, to try to secure whatever election, whatever elections they feel like are within reach. Pennsylvania is notoriously uh, corrupt in terms of its uh, elections. And uh, so here you have a, a case where um, they really could swing it even with just a fraction of these mail-in ballots that have gone out. Yeah, because these uh, these mail-in ballots, they're particularly dangerous in presidential races and Senate races. Um, it's a little harder to rig uh, a House of Representatives race. And, and the reason for that is that presidential races and Senate races are state-level winner-takes-all. Mm. Uh, if you have uh, several thousand mail-in ballots in Pittsburgh— that can tip the entire state. For House of Representatives, uh, the representatives only over his district. So if you have uh, a liberal stronghold like Pittsburgh or Philadelphia with a bunch of fraudulent ballots, that basically means that the liberal candidate there just wins by a bigger margin. You can't actually use Pittsburgh mail-in ballots to steal a county in rural Pennsylvania, which... Uh, I, I think that's one of the reasons they're they keep warning about fraud because they're expecting the Republicans to win, especially the House, because the House is harder to rig this way. Um, with the Senate candidates, it's a little easier because you can you can take the take the districts where your party's dominant, use the officials there to get the the, the fraudulent ballots in, and then use your margin to steal <laughs> steal support from. The counties where you're weak, yeah, uh, and so you definitely see that with. I mean, like now <laughs> in Pennsylvania, you've got a, a Senate candidate with like very visible like cognitive problems due to a recent stroke that they're still trying to push in, and they know that like probably not many people are <laughs> are going to vote for him, but they but they know that these mail-in ballots, particularly in Senate races, are. Um, really really vital mm-hmm. uh president trump obviously for for good reason he's actively encouraging pennsylvania state lawmakers to repeal mail-in ballot voting i think after his bad experience last uh election he's becoming an increasingly bigger advocate that like we just need paper ballots cast in a booth on election day no voting machines, no Dominion voting machines, no any electronic voting machines, mm-hmm. no uh, mail-in ballots unless maybe you're a military person on an overseas military base or something like that. But like the most secure way to do an election is have someone come to a poll, physically come to a poll and sign out, uh, sign out a ballot. It would make these things. Uh, President Trump would be in the White House today if they would have done that in 2020 right um and so he's he's definitely encouraging voter reform there uh a little too late uh, a little too late for this midterm election and so we'll see how this happens uh i i think the and, and most people think that the republicans will probably take 
the House of Representatives for reasons I've already talked about. They might take the Senate as well, but like I said, these mail-in ballot things, they they make that they make that Senate much easier to rig than the the rest of these. And um we'll put um our editor in chief's book America Attack under the the show notes. Uh that goes through uh a lot of the uh, the proofs that the twenty twenty election was stolen. Uh, and puts it into prophetic context. So those same proofs, those same proofs will apply <laughs> and to any fraud and to any fraud that may uh, and likely will occur in this election. Uh, but then also kind of giving the bigger prophetic, um, the bigger prophetic point is that the Bible does strongly indicate that President Trump will return to office. Uh, probably before the the 2024 presidential election. And so eventually people are going to have to take some of what he's saying uh, right now about uh, voter fraud in states like Pennsylvania more seriously. America Under Attack, if you haven't read it, you need to do so. We will link to it in the show notes. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, how next week's elections in Israel might play out. Trade between Russia and China booming. The renewal of the Vatican-China deal and the Biden administration continuing to drain America's oil reserves. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Next Tuesday is Election Day in Israel, and the latest polls show the front runner is someone we know quite well. For this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. Yes, Election Day exists in Israel, just one day. People are all going to go to vote, <laughs> and uh, by the end of it, we will know, know the winner. And the latest polls all through different how channels. How refreshing have, that sounds. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's <laughs> it how it's It would be really nice if that were the case in this country. Yeah, and and as far as the polls go, I mean, these polls have been notoriously wrong in the past. However, um, each of them are actually coming out to say that Netanyahu's coalition will either break even with achieving the 60 seats uh, to get half the Knesset out of 120 or it will actually get an outright majority um, with its coalition getting to 61 or 62 seats. And Israel's um, governing system, the way it works out is that, and we're all familiar with this because it's been five elections in the past couple of years, hmm. um, that the, the the leading vote getter as far as the leading party generally has the first crack at forming a coalition. So even if it comes back and the election comes back and, and it's 60 seats for Netanyahu's coalition, it's far easier for him to go and nab and entice somebody from the other side to join his government uh, with a with a portfolio or government a ministerial position um, that would mean their own personal glory. It's far easier to do that. Uh, as well. So it's quite easy to do that. So either way you look at it right now, I think unless there's a dramatic change in the next couple of days, Netanyahu's party will win uh, the most seats and his coalition will get to 60, if not 61 or 62. The, the one determining factor, I think, is if there is a, a, a great swing in the Arab voter turnout um, right now, the Arab voter turnout, according to the polls, is extremely low. 30 to 40% of Arabs are going to turn out to vote. 
Um, if more of them do come out, if it gets up to 50%, perhaps we'll see uh, a big change where the Arab parties go ahead and, and, and all of them will make it if they make it to the Knesset getting over the three and a half percent threshold to make it to the Knesset, then they would join with Lapid's party, um, the current prime minister, the caretaker prime minister. But as far as it goes right now, you're getting less votes actually for Netanyahu's party, Likud, but more votes for the parties that are on the right of him. Um, mm. They are polling extremely high uh, from what they've traditionally done. I think many people are, are disenchanted with some of the other center-right parties because of what happened with Naftali Bennett last election cycle, that he promised he wouldn't go in bed with the left, with Lepid, and so they voted for him. And so those people that thought they were voting for a right-wing candidate ended up supporting mm-hmm. a left-wing government. And so now you have this extreme right or further extreme right that is gaining steam because there's no way ever that these guys um, to the right of Netanyahu are going to go in with Lapid or an Arab party. And and these uh, the people who are voting for the the parties to the right of Netanyahu that benefits Netanyahu and his ability to uh, cobble together a coalition. Yeah, they're absolutely necessary. Now these some of these people were so far to the right um, that one of them even believed in expelling the Arabs from Israel that are already there. Um, I think he's kind of changed his tune, but Netanyahu kind of said in the past that he wouldn't even give them ministerial portfolios because they're too far to the right. However, uh, now that Netanyahu knows he needs them so desperately, you can't, you're going to see if if the coalition gets enough, you're going to see some of these ultra right wing um, parties gaining very important posts inside the Netanyahu government. Uh, one of them wants to reform an overhaul complete the, completely the judiciary which is interesting because it needs a complete overhaul mm-hmm. so it's 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 just really i mean we have the american election coming up later on the week following and you have israel lining up and the whole country has gone further to the right and not to the left mm-hmm. um and you might actually see as a result a strengthening of the Su- israeli supreme court to favor uh, more of the, the right-wing ideals than is currently there since it's a rogue leftist court right now, which in terms of biblical prophecy, we know a similar thing is is prophesied for the United States, not just a return of President Trump, who is a Netanyahu ally, but also even the Supreme Court in the United States to 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 be a, a bastion of, of conservative value as it is, and actually favoring President Trump's um, decision making, and and perhaps next week we'll see the start of Israel kind of going in that same direction. Quite fascinating. Uh, I, I I just think about the uh, all of the effort of these. You know, we've talked about the kind of Israeli deep state to uh, to take Netanyahu down. They they certainly uh, had to have felt like they did their job and were rejoicing and popping the champagne bottles when uh, when he was ousted. And boy, he just uh, doesn't seem to be going away and wouldn't be interesting if he were back in power. I guess we will find out next week. Uh, we thank you very much for bringing that to us. We'll keep our eyes on that election next Tuesday. Uh, thanks for that, Mr. Noctegal. New numbers show eye-popping growth in the trade between China and Russia over this past year. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. 
Yes, new data from the Chinese government shows that trade between Russia and China is up almost 28% uh, compared to last year. So just a drastic increase in these trade volumes. If you look just at September of 2022, China exported about $8 billion worth of trade to Russia that month, which is 18% higher than last September. And then for the same month, China received $10.7 billion in Russian imports. So that's a jaw-dropping 36% increase in imports over last year's numbers. So it's uh, just a major surge that's underway here, and a great deal of it is happening in the energy sector. China, of course, is the world's number one importer of energy. It's the thirstiest nation on earth. And Russia is the world's number one exporter of energy. So the two of them really complement each other perfectly with the, you know, the supply and demand of hydrocarbons. So that's really the backbone of this booming trade. And there are plans in place right now to keep on building and improving some of the pipelines that bring a great deal of that Russian energy into China. So that means that we should expect this trend to just keep on accelerating in the years ahead. So this is as the West is trying to isolate Russia economically, uh, that really has been probably the biggest driver of this increase in Chinese-Russian trade. Is that tr correct? It's a big part of what's driving it and a big part of what makes it so precious to Russia. You know, as you said, this is all happening while Russia's war on Ukraine continues to rage on. And we know that one of the big results of that war has been that the United States and many European and other Western countries have been trying to punish Russia by just, you know, cutting their purchases of Russian energy. And they're trying to cut Russia out of basically all other kinds of trade, too. Um, so the idea of the West slashing purchases of energy and ending other trade was to leave Russia in a tight spot, just isolated from the world. But then China came in and took exactly the opposite approach. We see from these, these figures that were just released that China is buying more Russian energy than ever and ramping up its uh, exports to Russia too. So this Chinese trade is throwing the Kremlin what I think is just a very valuable economic lifeline, and it's happening at a time when Russia needs it the most. It really is remarkable how much this Ukraine war and, and recent events uh, have driven these two Asian giants together. Uh, and it, to, to view it in light of the Bible's prophecies that they would come together, it really makes uh, everything that's happening here that much more kind of scintillating to see. For sure. Yes, this uh, this Russia-China axis and its resilience, despite, you know, all the pressure that's that's mounting due to the war, this is significant in terms of Bible prophecy. The book of Revelation tells us that a group of Asian countries will come together in the modern era and they'll just form this massive alliance with a 200 million man army. So an astonishing number of men. But with a nation like China, with its 1.3, 1.4 billion people, being one of the primary nations that's part of that, then that size of an army is really not at all unachievable. And then there are also passages in the book of Ezekiel showing that uh, Russia will be the lead nation of this Asian power block and that China will be uh, its main partner. That's mostly in uh, chapter 38 
of Ezekiel. So you can, you can really see the conditions being created for these biblical prophecies to come to pass with this, this partnership uh, between Russia and China and with other current trends happening in Asia. You just see Russia and China drawing close despite the war, and it's all working toward an outcome that is just what these Bible passages told us to expect. We have a little article talking about these latest statistics out of China on the website, China-Russia Trade Booming. You can check that out. And if you want to know more about this prophecy about Russia and China coming together in the end time, the role they'll play in end time events, read our booklet, Russia and China in Prophecy. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Jacques. The Pope is showing himself willing to keep dealing with China despite heavy criticism for doing so. He just renewed the deal the Vatican made with China in 2018 regarding the appointment of bishops. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. That's right. This kind of shocked the world back in 2018 where the exact terms of the deal were never made public. But the Catholic Church did a deal with China that um, you healed the schism that you had going on in China, uh, but then gave the uh, brought the Vatican much closer to the Chinese government. So prior to this point, there was kind of like a Communist Party approved uh, Catholic Church, and then there was an underground Catholic Church that was more in line with the Vatican. When this deal came out, the Catholic Church kind of threw the underground Catholics under the bus uh, and did some kind of deal that where there's some kind of arrangement that um, kind of brought them all back together. But the Catholic Church has had the ability to have some kind of an influence, some kind of, oh, sorry, the Chinese government has some kind of influence on what Chinese bishops uh, gets appointed. Right around the same time, we've also seen the Pope be very muted when it comes to criticism with China and not have very much to say about the things you'll hear on this show. You know, the the uh, human rights violations, the two one or two million Uyghurs in concentration camps, the slave labor, China's takeover of Hong Kong. Uh, there have been some Chinese bishops that are even now very vocal. One of them was recently... Uh, I think it was recently arrested, uh, but the uh, and or put on trial, Cardinal Joseph Zen. But the Vatican itself, as part of this deal, seems like they've been very silent. So this was signed in, or this was first formed, like you said, in December 2018. It was renewed two years later. We're still going strong. Uh, that's the main upshot. The Catholic Church officially renewed it, so uh, they're going to keep going for at least another couple of years. So this pope has been notoriously condemning of human rights violations in the United States. He's he's very uh, eager to uh, speak out against uh, racism and other problems that he perceives in the American uh, in America. Uh, he doesn't seem to have a problem with the human rights violations taking place in China, which I think would be not very difficult to argue are happening on a much broader scale than they are in the United States. Uh, it's hard, given that, not to view what he's doing here with a certain amount of cynicism, The uh, how this benefits uh, the Vatican and uh, the relationship that is developing between the Vatican and, and China and other nations. Uh, it's actually something that Bible prophecy speaks about pretty directly, isn't it? It does. I mean, we referenced, we mentioned Revelation chapter 17 
already. And this is a core chapter for understanding the Catholic Church. It's a, it's a chapter that in fairly recently, a lot of people could read this and understand that this was a chapter talking about the Catholic Church. Uh, it's not something that that, that is uh, particularly deeply hidden in in this chapter. I think Mr. Uh, Mr. Flurry has even talked about, you know, it just needs a bit of Bible study and a bit of history. You can quite clearly see that, the, that this is a European empire and this is the Catholic Church being discussed here. And Protestants quite commonly used to talk about that uh, in Revelation chapter 17. So you've got a, a here a woman, this symbol of, um, of the church that's used throughout the Bible. And it talks about this as being you know, a big, powerful woman, you know, decked with gold, a lot of riches. Uh, and it says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. So this is a woman that is, you know, instead of being called out of this world, is having these kind of illicit relationships with the rulers of the world, doing deals, making treaties with the different rulers of this world, something that you, you know, God's church in the New Testament is described as small and a little flock, and it's not it's not operating on that kind of level at all. But you've got a, a church here that's going around and uh, having these illicit relationships with multiple kings. And we often talk about Revelation 17 in, in line, just as we did in the first half, with the Catholic Church and Europe. Uh, and that is absolutely the primary, you know, what this is talking about, the woman this, this church rides the beast. It controls this empire that's rising in Europe. But it still has this relationship with other kings. It's still doing politics and deals with other, with other nations. And that's what you see with the Catholic Church. And uh, this is not an isolated incident. You've, there's hundreds and hundreds of years of the Catholic Church doing deals with different churches and, and, and different groups. And so different, different you see countries. Them doing different countries, sorry. Yes, doing, doing deals with, with different countries. And so you, uh, you, know, you look at what has been happening here with the Pope, and, and we talk about this in our Holy Roman Empire and Prophecy booklet. The current Pope has been doing a huge amount to condemn the United States and to draw the world against the United States, whether it has been in terms of climate change or you know, having Vatican documents that kind of call America's economic system, things like the dung of the devil and condemning America's economic system as being a root cause of all evils. Uh, the selective way that you just mentioned that he'll cover human rights abuses and things like that. And, and none of this is to say that America is perfect, but uh, I think it was Paul Johnson said something like the essence of geopolitics is to distinguish between different degrees of evil. You know, there's um, you know, what is happening in China is on a whole nother level to any of the you know, the real or imagined grievances that are happening in the United States. It's it's completely off the charts. Uh, and so what this Pope has been doing is really building a coalition, a worldwide coalition that paints the United States in a very negative way that says the United States is at the root cause of the world's economic problems, that the world is heading to a climate catastrophe and the United States is the root cause of that. Uh, it will do deals with China and, and be silent on the evils that they are doing. And yeah, it, it's part of this building of an alliance. And this building of an alliance is something we talked about on the show last time, this growing alliance between Europe and China. I won't take the time to go through the prophecies uh, this time, but we've consistently talked about there's going to be an alliance between Europe, between China, that Europe will do a bit of a deal with Russia as well in the short term. You'll see the entire world... Uh, apart from you know, Britain, America, Canada, Australia, some of these other nations, you'll see a good chunk of the world uniting against America. And we see the Pope playing a crucial role in making that happen. 
Uh, and that is right in line with Revelation 17. That's right in line with what we've been saying, what the Bible says the Holy Roman Empire led by this church will do. Uh, we have an article on the previous trumpet trumpet print from last year called The Vatican's Unholy China Deal by uh, by Andrew Miller that goes through and, and talks about, gives you a lot more specifics about this deal and, and what's prophesied. And then our Holy Roman Empire in Prophecy booklet takes you through just the overall picture of what the Bible says about, about this institution. Outstanding. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. One final story, as elections approach in America, rising gasoline prices are an issue that hurts Democrats. President Biden is addressing this issue in an alarming way. For this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, that is one of the reasons I think Democrats are so uh, invested in getting these mail-in ballots and stuff thrown out is because record high uh, inflation and record high gas prices are really driving a lot of people towards the Republican Party. So they know they're not going to win this fair and square. Uh, but another way, in addition to the uh, <laughs> probably more concerning election fraud allegations, they're trying to get more people to vote for them, is to bring the gas down by draining America's emergency reserves. Uh, just recently, a Biden announced that he was going to sell another 15 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And so that 15 million barrels uh, increases the supply of oil in America while the demand stays the same. And if you increase supply while demand stays the same, the price will come down somewhat. Uh, and so probably, according to the most recent polls I've seen, half of Republicans and two-thirds of Democrats uh, support this move because they, uh, they want the price of gas to come down, uh, but it could have some pretty devastating long-term effects because uh, now America established our strategic petroleum reserve in 1975 after the OPEC nations, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, uh, refused to sell oil to America and gas prices have skyrocketed. And we realized that like, okay, well, if these Arab countries we buy so much of our oil from refuse to sell like we need an emergency reserve in case a crisis like that happens again. And so they established this reserve and have only tapped into it three times. Uh, once during Operation Desert Storm, we were at war with Iraq, which disrupted our oil supply. Once during Hurricane Katrina, which took out a bunch of our domestic oil uh, rigs. And then once during the first Libyan Civil War. So this uh, Biden draining is the first time there's really the war in Ukraine is not really affecting our supply of oil at all. So it's the first time a president is draining oil for purely political purposes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it, he's only been in office in about 19, 20 months, and he's actually drained 40% of our strategic petroleum reserve, uh, trying to keep gas prices low while he refuses to sell leases for more drilling. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the number of leases Biden sold for new drilling is lower than any president since World War II. So I even saw one Wall Street Journal article where there was kind of tongue in cheek, but they're saying, they said, when we told Biden he needs to tap America's reserves, we were talking about the ones in the ground, mm -hmm. not the ones uh, in our emergency supply. It's mm -hmm. like, I think he misunderstood. But... <laughs> yeah. uh, but that is, um, prophetically, this is, this is also quite significant because uh, as our editor-in-chief booklets, Ezekiel the End Time Prophet, has a whole chapter about this prophesied trade siege, this smart of nations that comes against America 
and cuts off its oil supply in a much more dramatic way than OPEC did in the 70s. When that happens, uh, America is going to need <laughs> a whole lot more reserves than we even began with. And the fact that now like 40% of those reserves, 40% and counting is already gone just because Biden wants people to vote for him without actually drilling for oil is a... Uh, just really naively and and uh, treasonously short-sighted. Mr. Miller wrote a little article about this Biden drain strategic petroleum reserve. You can find that on the Trumpet site. I believe it will be there on Monday uh, and goes into a little more detail about what prophecy says about this. Thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Rene Descartes. The reading of all good books is like a conversation with the finest minds of past centuries. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.